I don't need a congressional honor. I don't need Agent Thompson's approval or the president's. I know my value. Anyone else of anyone else's opinion doesn't really matter. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about Agent Carter on Genreless. Welcome to the official start of season three. Hooray! We're here. We're here for the long haul. <laughs> Maybe, possibly. And now you've cursed us, and we'll get like an episode <laughs> in, and like, all right, we're done. We had creative differences. Andy we're doesn't the like the right type of drink. I only drink like my lattes with vanilla, and Eddie drinks his with cinnamon. Can't work anymore. I don't even drink lattes, so <laughs> even worse. That's it. I don't drink coffee. <laughs> oh. This podcast is ended. I hope you all have a good day. I say good day, sir. Good day, sir. <laughs> so, um, superheroes. Yeah. This is going to be a long, if we, if the coffee thing doesn't kill us, this will potentially be a very long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, like a multiple seasons. Wow. It is, it was so hard to put the season together that I'm not even sure where to start with it. Well, like, uh, I mean, kind of start with the fact that we are in a amazingly prolific time for this media, right? Like, I mean, if the, the the list of shows we were looking at possibly including just within the past 10 years dwarfs all other shows prior to that. Yeah. I mean, like you and I are of an age where we remember like getting the Incredible Hulk show was exciting, you know? <laughs> I still... Still tear up when I hear the Lonely Man theme song. I know, right? Um, and uh, just having a show on like I, mean, I remember like when The Flash was on CBS in the nineties, <laughs> and that was a big deal because that was a superhero show. Even though, even though I didn't really have any connection with The Flash, it was a superhero show. I wanted to watch it. Uh, Smallville well, the- was kind of like the big tipping point of like, oh, the superhero shows can't last a while. Or the failed Justice League show. That never yeah. got anywhere. I I, I, yeah. I have not watched the pilot, but I have heard people talk about the pilot, and it was a thing that existed. It, it was a thing. It, it is only rivaled by the the new mutants pilot from Fox back in the day. Oh, you mean Generation X? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, oh, it has Matt Frewer. I love Matt Frewer, and I watched it, and I was like, oh, Matt Frewer, why? <laughs> uh, I think they call it a paycheck. Right, no, Matt. He Matt has no shame. I respect that. Um, so I mean, it's there's a lot going on to the point where, um, it's so ubiquitous that we're now hitting a stage where people are satirizing it, amusingly as if it had never been satirized before. Even though that, that's very much a thing that happened several times in the existence of superheroes. Um, but I mean, it's. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot to look at and it, it, it kind of reminds me of, of, of punk genres, honestly, is that um, you can always subdivide down to like three people in a room in Seattle and call that a movement, a punk movement legitimately. <laughs> Superior is the same way. It's like, do you divide it by 
uh, network do you divide it by comic it's based on do you divide it by you know team versus solo um do you divide it by satire comedy horror um and we went through all of these conversations i mean so and and the and, and the we answer was like briefly touched on dividing it sorry we even briefly touched on dividing it by era for a while like the golden age the silver mm -hmm. age anything you can think of that we debated how to slice it one way or the other Right. And uh, uh, the thing is that it's it's so big and we've been trying to avoid like these super large genres. That's that's the reason why we have like our, our, our mecha anime one was so dialed in and our space opera one was pretty dialed in. Uh, but it just came down to the fact that to do this justice, we had to kind justice. of justice. Uh, we had to kind of just take a big, long swing at it. Um, so the only qualification we have for the whole overall journey we're taking for this um, is that it's was created in the 21st century. Uh, and even then, it's mostly within the past 10 years, so there's a couple of exceptions that we're, we're talking about. And we've sort of grouped them almost by network. But with the networks constantly changing and losing rights, other people being gobbled up by other networks, it almost boils down to the first season is going to be focused on shows that were Marvel, but not on Disney Plus at the time because Disney Plus did not exist. But right. now they would be on Disney Plus because Disney Plus went, hey, give it back our show and your contract's up. And they said, you know what? You are bigger than we are. So we agree to that. Right. Yeah. This is kind of all to use MCU language phase one, a little bit of phase two era where the television studio arm of Marvel was a separate group um, where somewhere around Avengers Endgame, they got reacquired back into the Marvel group. So we're looking at uh, uh, stuff that CBS and Netflix primarily put together. Back when they were so busy trying to tell us that it was it's all connected and it wasn't. Right, right. Um, which is a, a good way kind of into both agent Carter and I think this first stab at things is um, this is an interesting era where a lot of, frankly, a lot of superhero shows sit in that it is not reciprocal continuity. Uh, they are beholden to another continuity, but that another continuity does not necessarily respect what these shows are creating. So they're in kind of interesting creative limbo and we'll get to see kind of what each team and showrunner and actor uh, team does with that kind of balance of creativity and freedom. True. And that would be a great lead in to agent Carter, but to, to show people how, how little we prep beforehand, I'm going to pause that amazing transition <laughs> that Eddie made to go back a little bit okay. to discuss the problematic nature of superheroes. Okay. That's fair. Because the very concept of superheroes themselves, vigilantes, regardless of powers, dispensing what they consider to be justice, and that justice is frequently dealt out on marginalized or impoverished or underlies people than it is on white collar folks or people mm -hmm. of affluence and so forth and so on. Like right. this is something that we have to discuss before we can delve into superheroes, in my opinion, in good conscience, because... I love the superhero genre, but I also know the entire, the incredible problematic aspects of it. I, I think that's part entirely fair. Um, uh, there have been some sort of superhero media that walk up to the line of that. Uh, uh, the Watchmen graphic novel and original movie, 
um, Squadron Supreme, uh, some versions of Earth 2 in DC have all taken various swings on the, the logical conclusion of superhero media, which that ultimately they bec- it becomes fascism. Uh, if, if someone can genuinely solve all the problems of the world, they will inevitably either be in charge or people will want them to be in charge. And that is a problem. Uh, so superhero media are always kind of in this strange space where they have to be a part of the world we recognize, but their very existence changes the world on a technological, social, and political way. Um, there are shows that deal with that in interesting ways. Uh, I think the HBO Watchmen show is an excellent example of that, uh, of what happens to the people who are not superheroes and how do they live in that environment. Uh, the Boys is another example of, of that. Um, so there are certainly shows that are addressing that point. Uh, but I'm with you. I love superhero media. I probably always will. But certainly in the past uh, 10 plus years, maybe even longer, because um, I think I started to rec- recognize this around the late 90s or 2000s, um, is that it, it, it cannot be an allegory to our real world, even though a lot of what makes superheroes work is a connection to our real world. So it's always kind of dancing on that line and to be blunt, frequently dances over it. Yes. And... As we're here more to talk about Agent Carter than the actual superhero medium itself, I, I won't go into the the full nitty gritty of it, but that's a concept that I wanted to make sure that we at least brought up and address now. And maybe by the end of the season in a year, 16 years, whenever it happens, we may actually go more into that conversation. But like just a concept alone that people that idealize Batman and Batman is constantly going out in the street and punching equivalently low lives for him in the, in the face while not going anything against stopping the corporate people that are causing the actual problems that would therefore ripple out and help the economy is, is stifling. It's also the fact that Bruce Wayne could change the entire economic status of Gotham. So right. One of the things I loved about the Starman run back in the day is when Jack took over from Ted after spoilers uh his brother david <laughs> got killed mm-hmm. he said i want you to use your scientific genius to, for the betterment of humanity mm-hmm. and then that's why jack decided to become a hero so his father who was a genius could do all these great things right but yeah. the problem is with the medium his dad was constantly working on something but it never came to fruition while if he was battling a supervillain, he could have built anything in one issue and like resolve the problem right and so i think uh, as we go into this I think it's fair to summarize both of our stance is that uh, we're going to come across contradictory throughout this whole run. There were times where this is so cool and we really love this and we're not engaging with the politics of the medium because we can't. It's like you can't hold those both three thoughts in your head. Much like the medium itself, we're going to be constantly digressing and bouncing back and forth. I do think looking at the lineup we have coming up, and we'll start here with Agent Carter, but there are points where the concept of the show or certain things that happens in the episode will allow us to kind of un- unpack that a bit. Uh, and I think that'll be fun and interesting conversation. Well, one of the reasons why I think we both want to do this is because there's going to be a lot of potential fun conversations here. But understand that we're going to be like, okay, this is problematic. We recognize it's problematic, but oh my God, it's so cool. You know what I mean? So it, we're going to have moments like that where it's like, yep, that sure is a problematic thing, but we still find it cool and interesting. So we are embracing inherently problematic media as a result. 
And just for people to know that superhero comics are political. They've always been political. Oh my God, yes. Even if you go back to the first Superman, Superman is stopping spousal abuse and he's like taking down corrupt landlords. And even the introduction of Captain America is Cap punching Hitler in the face. Mm-hmm. Which Before us- the U.S. went into the World War, it's a lot of things people forget. We were a year away from entering World War II, so that was an explicitly political thing that Jack Kirby did. Yes, that was like the incre- incredible artists and writers of the times like trying to move us towards something that we should already be doing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, all right, you, you forced <laughs> me to say this now. Uh, Jack Kirby was so awesome that after that happened, there were some people that were, were equivalent Nazi sympathizers saying they were downstairs and he'd better not come downstairs or they were going to show him what for. And Jack told them, I'm coming down right now. Don't let them go anywhere. And when you get downstairs, they were, they were gone. Yep. Like, that is how amazing Jack Kirby is. Right. And, and I think that's a good, that's actually a good segue for Agent Carter specifically, but also it's, while we recognize that this is problematic, also there are lots of people who absolutely have used the media to try to encourage and push social change. And we're going to see some of that through these shows. And we're going to see some opportunities where they could have done that and didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, if you're coming into this thinking, oh, they're going to have fun talking about superheroes, we're going to also have that. But it's absolutely we cannot disengage from the politics entirely. So we're going to keep touching on it as we go through. I think it's probably going to happen. All right. Now, all that said, I want you to remember Captain America punching a Nazi. And we're going to move <laughs> into Agent Carter. Uh, so we've got season one, episode one. Now is not the end. In 1946, Petty Carter, mourning the apparent death of Steve Steve, ah, Steve Rogers, Captain America, returned to work for the Strategic Scientific Reserve, the SSR, in New York, following the end of World War II. The SSR investigates industrialist Howard Stark for apparently selling weapons to enemies of the United States. Stark secretly asks Peggy for help to clear his name. Before he leaves the country, he tells her about a formula for a molecular neutrinian bomb that is going to (laughs) thank you formula for his molecular nutrient that's going to be sold and so she investigates and discovers it's going to be at a club and so she goes in disguise to the club and discovers the formula has already been weaponized she shows the bomb to a stark industry scientist who decides who deduces that it came from roxanne oil refinery carter along with stark's butler edward jarvis Jarvis, Jarvis. Uh, investigates the refinery and locates uh, Let, who apparently works for an organization called Leviathan, and escapes with a truck full of explosives. Before he leaves, he drops one of the bombs, and Carter and Jarvis escape as it destroys the entire building. And equivalently, the bombs themselves explode out, and then they implode in, right. which is amazing. And it reminded me a lot of The Shadow from the 1990s with Alec Baldwin, yes. where the imploding, exploding bomb. And someone says, I mean, an atomic bomb? And he responds, that's kind of catchy. That <laughs> quote has stayed with me since then. And I had to share it. Oh, the, the Shadow movie is is both terrible and amazing. Um, and, and I have thoughts about it. But I love the Shadow movie. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and say unabashedly, I loved the show when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a show that I wanted to be on the air infinitely more so than agents of shield that this was sort of like a agents of shield went on a break and they brought out agent carter i think agent carter should have been the main show and agents of shield should have been a sideshow or just not exist at all and if you like agents of shield i burned you and i'm moving on 
I I will go. Uh, my hot take is I will go as far as to say I feel like Agent Carter is more of an Agents of Shield show than the Agents of Shield show was, because pretty quickly Agents of Shield like spoilers for Agents of Shield, but um, they, they've been infiltrated by Hydra because of uh, events in the movies, um, and so Shield gets dissolved pretty but early on in the run, like right, late season one, early season two. It wasn't Hydra they were fighting at the start. Uh, I didn't watch much of it, but I know that I think it was an organization, in fact, called Caterpillar. Because oh, that's right. they couldn't say Hydra. Hydra, right. Because the TV and the movie divisions were fighting, and Kevin Feige hated the TV people, and the TV people just wanted a quick buck. Right. Um, well, more important, the fact is that S.H.I.E.L.D. stopped being a going concern about a season <laughs> in. So... The whole we're going to do spy stuff in a superhero world thing never really went anywhere. There were more men in black kind of yeah. you know super cops. And then uh th- that got that got lost real fast. Um and it kind of bounced around in genre, which is fine for a show. I I think a show that reinvents itself is actually a good thing. I, I love Doctor Who and that does all the time. Um, but in terms of, I want to show about science cops who occasionally do spy stuff in a superhero world and don't have anything special about themselves other than, I mean, they're, they're special because they're special people, but not have like superpowers. This show actually does that a lot better. Hands down. And the the coolest thing about S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, other than the fact they're S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, is that they have access to tech when they go through missions. Right. And that should have been the highlight of it. And that's sort of what you focus on on the side. But the actual plot of the show should always be like the espionage mission they're doing or mm-hmm. their thing they're encountering and dealing with which agent carter almost encapsulated from the jump even like just the first image sort of sets the stage for the entire show with peggy walking against an entire crowd of people sorry the second image of the show with peggy mm-hmm. walking down the street in the red hat like that yep. red hat is just like a symbol and a sign against like a just a backwash of everything else mm-hmm. beautifully done absolutely um and uh, well, I can make an argument that it's it's pretty heavy-handed. Um, I do like the fact that the show engages with the political environment that it's in, which again, Agents of Shield didn't. Uh, Agents of Shield's like, oh yeah, Shield just kind of widely recognized and allowed to, to to fuck around and go to different countries and do stuff. And the SSR is always swimming uphill. Well, I, I love that because it's also reflective of the OSR right during world war ii because the osr mm-hmm. had lost i think they were still existing then but they were about to no longer uh they lost a lot of their clout and everything else during the war and it was constantly underfunding and they were like this great intelligence agency that could do all these things but they never had proper resources and they were always stretched too thin and it sort of reflects of actual history doing that which was a very nice touch right all right i guess i, I will stop praising compliments just for a second um, one of the things I liked while it may be considered, uh, I think heavy handed and somewhat is a layer of misogyny that they automatically present for the show that Peggy and uh, other characters have to endure. Mm-hmm. And people may think that it was overdone, but if you're someone that is constantly experiencing that, and I'm speaking from the racism aspect and right. relating that to this is that it is always there. It is always present. And whenever mm-hmm. you go through a room People inherently look at you differently. They treat you differently. They engage with you differently. And right. they frequently don't treat you as a peer, even if you are a peer. Mm-hmm. They'll find like little ways more modern in modern day, they'll find more little ways to slight you. Back then, they didn't have to do it 
secretively, they could just be more blatant and blunt with it, which is what we see here. Right. Regardless of her capabilities. And uh, uh, kind of build on that, um, one, I'm with you. You need to be heavy handed to sell that because you have 45 minutes to establish this as a, as a setting. So you need to really make sure to get it. Um, what I was really astounded by is that not only are they layering to that, but they, on top of that, also introduce ableism with Sousa. Um, and uh, not only that, but also uh, uh, several characters who were clearly traumatized by the war are also kind of just dismissed on a mental health level. Uh, so um, again, like I, I can quibble about some of the interpretations, but the fact that they had a, a disabled, disabled agent who is presented as not only capable and intelligent, but also attractive, which is a rare fucking thing. A, a disabled person as a sexual symbol is massive in a way that I don't think can be easily overstated. Um, uh, and then, so like not only are the SSR people giving uh, Peggy shit because she's a woman, but they're also giving Sousa shit because he's disabled. And he was disabled because he served his country. Yeah. Um, so there's an additional layer of the, uh, uh, although I've never experienced it, I have had friends who experienced it, who they come back from a conflict and, you know, uh, they're, they're applauded briefly, but then otherwise society treats them like crap. And it's like, why did I, why did I, I thought I was doing something good, but yet the people that I did this for are now treating me like I'm nothing. Uh, I can, I can say that is accurate. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so episode one, season one, this show is Swinger for the Bleachers. And it is beautifully shot too. It felt like yeah. they had a budget and it is presenting the time and error incredibly well. And it is nice to see though that they take on the movie itself. Like the actual one of the first scenes is Peggy remembering Steve and like their last conversation, which right. sort of brings in that movie tie. It helps establish who Peggy is in case folks haven't seen the movie before, but they know who Captain America is. Mm -hmm. The automatic association with Peggy. And then you get to see Peggy throughout the course of the episode being an exceptional agent. And one of the things that the show did that I really liked is that Peggy, when she fights people, she's fighting everybody. She's just not right. fighting. She doesn't fall in the, doesn't fall in the stereotrope where they would have a female or femme presenting person only fighting a female or femme presenting person. Yeah. She's fighting like everybody. And when she's fighting, she's pulling back like full blown, like punches and using everything in her environment, like a trained soldier or spy would at the time, like hands down. Right. Um, to go back to your point about, uh, uh visuals, um, I, I was again reminded and impressed by the fact that they really wanted this to look as much like the first Avenger movie as possible. Uh, and I, and so I agree with that, but also I, I took my mind back to when this aired a little bit. And I remember at the time being surprised that CBS greenlit a show that was only 10 episodes a season. Because Ages of Shield was like you know full like kind of twenty six ish episodes, uh, and now we very much see that as the norm for superhero shows. It's like they have a higher budget, so they have to make that they have less episodes to use that budget in to make that budget kind of work, right? It's the okay you get higher budget per episode, but you have less episodes to make that balance out, as opposed to like a reality TV show, which are you know, you can, you can film that off like a sandwich budget and then do a million episodes with it. Uh, so, I mean, it, 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 it was, it was an interesting strategy for CBS. And I suspect for CBS of the 2010 era, that's probably one of the reasons why it didn't last very long is because 
they had structured their entire network around basically four months of programming out of a new show. And this only you know, two months it's done. Uh, but it's interesting how it kind of predicted what become what we now see as a standard superhero structure of roughly ten episodes a season. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. Like that's the model that I became accustomed with from watching a lot of BBC television shows that you right. generally have about six to eight episodes. And the reason I believe that works so well is that it lets you focus on the plot and the characters without having to stretch everything out when done yep. properly. Mm-hmm. And I've advocated for a long time that I think a lot of shows should move to that model. But at the same time, I would be concerned if they did, because then people would no longer write the amount of material to be squeezed into those eight episodes. Instead, they would write material for four episodes and then try to squeeze it out to eight. Right. And so that's the that weird conundrum. But I would love just to have like constantly eight episode seasons of an array of different shows. And so when one ends, you can take like a week break and then you start up a brand new show with a new character and you still get all those arcs and you can have your same amount of television, but you get different ideas and you have more thing, more chances for things to work on the same budget they had before. But mm-hmm. I'm not a, a TV network. And if I was, people probably wouldn't watch it because I don't like air weird stuff that I like. You know, like uh, a better version of the Cowboy Bebop live action show. I'm just saying, maybe. So the actual episode itself kicks off when we see that Howard Stark, father of Tony Stark, which even as like we're on the call and my name on this call is never trust a Stark (laughs) because it's true. No. uh, Comes to Peggy on the side after he's sort of been accused of selling weapons saying, hey, I didn't sell weapons. And Peggy's already shown, doesn't have a lot of friends while she's here. She has her roommate who's letting her stay there for, not for free, but like off the books with her because she didn't have anywhere else to go. Right. And since Howard's her friend, she says, hey, I'll help you clear your name. Like, we both knew Steve. We both miss Steve. And this is a chance for me to actually do this thing that I'm trained to do instead of getting people coffee. Mm-hmm. And so it's, as she has access to all the records already there, it gives her a chance to like go and investigate around. And... Well, I, I love the club scene. This also highlights my first real issue with the entire show. Because mm-hmm. your first presentation of a black person is a criminal. Right. Followed by the second one is one of the band members. And like the show has a significant problem with the integration of race. Yeah. And it doesn't get better at all in this season. Right. Like it's no. completely problematic it, the whole time. It, it, it did not until season two that it starts to pick up. And then even in season two, I, I we'll get there. It, it, um, it, it, yeah. Right. Yeah. We'll get there. Um, no. Yeah. I, I, I also recognize that um, there's a lot going on here, um, but I, I'm with you. It's like, just swap some of those actors to be black actors. Don't change the character at all, really. And just show more of them on screen. I think would have been fine because we're talking about an idealized world anyway, in some ways. And yes, we're talking about uh, uh, misogyny and ableism, but so we don't have to address racism. So just kind of gloss over that part, you know, but just have more people of color on screen. It's not even historically accurate, historically. And if you want to go by history, uh, the first black FBI agent was in 1919. So you've right. already got an oh, established okay. history for it. Yeah. And you've even got, I want to say, I think it was Gabe Jones, who was part of the Howling Commandos in World War II. Right. Yep. 
So you've already got the characters and you got a history for it. And like you're saying, easily could have changed one, two characters and that would have wouldn't resolve the issue, but it would have lessened the impact of it. But right. I know when I first watched it, that was almost like a, a non-starter for me. I almost stopped the whole show. Mm-hmm. So like watching in, we're about five, we're about 10, 15 minutes in. I haven't seen any black people and your first black person. Um, God, I think he's from the wire too. And mm-hmm. is a crime, crime boss who gets handy with Peggy and mm-hmm. is then quickly killed. Yep. Like three minute story arc. That's all you got. And frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You do get to see Peggy doing some amazing spy work though, as she sort of like avoids her own agency acquires the formula, the bomb actually that she needs. And you get a glimpse of who's going to be some of the ongoing antagonists for the show, like the Leviathan agents and how they're quiet and they're deadly and efficient, and they don't really seem to care for human life. Mm -hmm. Um, About Peggy fighting. I want to talk about that a little bit uh, because um, one thing in recent years I've started to notice is uh, the sexualization of feminine violence. Uh, and if you compare Peggy Carter to like, say, uh, Black Widow, for example, um, she uses a lot of kicks to emphasize her legs. Um, she has a lot of, of clamping her legs around people's necks to strangle them. Um, lots of, uh, of reaching backwards to try to punch people behind her. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that because that is very much her character, right? You know, you know she is a honeypot style spy. That is what she does. Um, so using her body to distract people as well as incapacitate them makes sense. Peggy, none of that happens in Peggy's choreography. She is very much booked to be just a, a badass soldier. And so, um, you know, things like, uh, at the beginning when, uh, they escape, um, she basically tells Jarvis to pull the car around and she leaps off of the exploding building to jump on the roof of a car. And <laughs> nothing about that, she just looks like anybody else who would have been in that situation. It's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, I gotta, gotta hit this car. Um, and it, it it looks cool. She just looks cool. And it's been nice because even when uh, uh, Peggy has come up in, in, in subsequent media, um, without doing too much spoilers, suffice to say, she does get some superheroic moments. Um, but even those are not she's not sexualized. She's she's very much presented. She you could see how Steve Rogers learned from her and how she learned from Steve Rogers in terms of her fighting skill, because they, they move very similarly. Yeah. Which I love. Sorry. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing to see just watch her like reel back and sock somebody in the face. Oh, mm-hmm. like that's great. Or grabs. So I've always, I have a stapler like that stapler and I've been waiting <laughs> for my chance to do that staple move on somebody. Mm-hmm. So just before one people, um, <laughs> I, I could keep giving rave compliments about this episode, but we're we're going to move on. Is, is there anything else you want to say about? No, I, I think we got that episode done. All right. So we move on to season one, episode four, Blix Creed Button. After learning the two Leviathan agents were supposed to have died during the Battle of Finro, Finrau, Dooley travels to Germany to speak with a Nazi colonel who led the opposing forces. And though he doesn't learn how they survived, Dooley does discover that their Soviet forces were seemingly massacred before the Nazis even arrived. With Carter's only job, assigned by Thompson, who's given command of the base while Dooley's gone, to collect lunch orders, she meets with Stark, who is secretly returned 
in the wake of his technology's discovery. So the one thing that we did skip over is that Stark then completely leaves the country for about three or four episodes and Peggy's right. adventuring with Jarvis and discovering other things. Mm -hmm. Looking at photographs, Carter takes takes for the weapons. He identifies one of them as a Blixcrude button, which he claims can cause a permanent blackout through the city. However, a suspicious Carter opens the device to find a vial of blood, which she believed to be Rogers's blood. And when she confronts Stark, he admits that it is. And the, she socks him and sort of like leaves. Right. The criminals who smuggled Stark into New York, but were stopped from extorting additional fees from Carter and Jarvis also followed Peggy back to her apartment. And as he's sneaking around, he's going to try to kill Peggy is killed by Dottie Underwood. And Dottie is a new person in the new apartment building that Peggy got a new apartment after her pre previous roommate was killed. So I right. love some stuff out of the previous episode. Right, right, right. Getting back up to speed. Sorry, folks. <laughs> um, and Dottie is played by the incredible Bridge, uh, Bridget Regan, who I know from the legend of Seeker, the legend of the Seeker. And that is the only reason I push for us to do a fantasy season, too. Because oh, wow. I like the first season of that show. Second season? I've I, I not watched it at all, so. And when we're talking about fighting styles, Dottie is sort of a precursor to the Black Widow. Because yeah. she went mm -hmm. through that school training. And you get to see her do this very cool up-the-wall move and then kill kill the um the other person. Right, right. The, the, the extortionist, yeah. And it's very much, um, very much sort of put out that she is, oh, what's the right word? The training, everything she went under has definitely altered her personality. Oh, yeah. She's completely brainwashed. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, the actress does a great job of kind of turning that her personality on and off like a light switch. Because um, she does the kind of, uh, not quite ditzy, but certainly kind of uh, uh, gregarious no woman. Who, huh? Doe-eyed innocent. Yeah, yeah, right. And then when she needs to, she just turns it off and becomes somebody else. And she does a great job of, of, of presenting that, that dichotomy, which is fantastic. Uh, one thing I do want to kind of talk about is Jarvis in this, because um, Jarvis is an interesting character throughout this season. He's definitely a supporting character. Uh, I started off okay with it because it was nice to see in a show led by a woman that her main supporting male character comes across as a little kind of cowardly and timid. Uh, but they pretty quickly established that it's not because he's a terrible person. It's because he is a family man. He has a wife. Uh, he has a job. And he, he's just, he's, he's in over his head. And the only reason he's doing this primarily is because his employer told him to do it because Tony Stark doesn't care about people. Or sorry, uh, Howard Stark, same thing. You know, Howard Stark version 1.0. Um, I mean, it's, it's he's like, yeah, yeah, my, my butler would take care of that. That's very much rich white guy thing to do. And so Jarvis is like, I, but okay. Uh, we're starting to see at this point in episode four that he has hidden depths. But they never overshadow Peggy, which I, which I appreciated, uh, is that Jarvis is an interesting and cool character zone, right? And he's genuinely, he's kind of the straight man to the, the comic relief of, of Tony, of Howard Stark. You know, I mean, he, he's definitely playing the, 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 the dry, somber wit. Uh, but 
he also is an interesting point because you have SSR and Stark as the, this is the MCU, things are weird, we're always having somebody to conflict with, and Jarvis becomes kind of the humanizing other side of that. Uh, and that is the role that traditionally women play in these kinds of media. And to have a man play that in a way that does not diminish his character was genuinely interesting. It was an interesting dynamic. It could have been done badly, but both actors really straddled that line. And, and the relationship between Peggy and Jarvis starts off kind of a throwaway thing, but it becomes a genuinely interesting subplot to follow through this season. So it's interesting that you say starts off timid. Like for me, when I was watching it, even the first time around, it didn't come across quite like that to me. It came across mm -hmm. more as someone that is doing their job and that served in the war. So mm -hmm. there's that bit of detachment to this because this is what I'm paid to do. But at no point in time did I like feel that. It's more of the, the I have other places I could be, but I'm here because I'm paid to be here until they become friends. I mean, that that's fair. Um, but... Uh, uh, I like the fact that it's a little open, right? Because uh, um, Jarvis's excuses are, I, I, I have a wife, I have an obligations, you know, I go to bed at this time. And you can read that as Peggy's shenanigans are just one more thing he has to deal with in his job that he's trying to give himself a good work-life balance, which I respect. Yeah. But it can also be read like, at least at first, we don't know the character, like they're excuses. Hmm. Oh, I'd love to go do this, but I have to go clean up the garage, you know? And it it takes the show over time unfolded to realize, no, Jarvis is genuinely devoted to his wife, genuinely devoted to his job, and also genuinely does not want his life to be dragged into this. So it's so so you realize it's not timidity, but when you're coming into the show fresh, you have a, a, a British character who's quiet and understated. That's kind of a certain cultural archetype for Americans of, of what that character is going to be. And he turned out to not be that. But initially, it's, it's, it's around here you start to see that he's got more depth because he, he's negotiating with the smuggler. And he's like, you know, oh, well, that's not the money we agreed to. <laughs> and you could see initially he looks like he's nervous about it. But then pretty quickly when Peggy kind of slinks off, you realize, no, he's playing for time. And the, without him changing his performance, the way the show is structured and shot, you realize, no, Jarvis is in on this joke. He's pretending to be this to give Peggy the time she needs to do what she needs to do and realizing they're actually a genuinely good team together. And then you start to realize in later episodes that there's actually genuinely more to Jarvis. But this episode is where that kind of starts to tip. The first couple of episodes we, we skipped over, it's Jarvis is almost as much of a hindrance as he's a help to Peggy in those first couple of episodes. But that also goes back almost to training. It's, for instance, like if you're playing in a game and you have someone that is a spy, then you have someone else that's the the driver and the driver has to sneak into a building with a spy. Like their skill sets are so offset right. Right. that you have the comedic performance of one that they can have experience to sort of like invest in those things. You're right. We're superheroes. I just made a gaming analogy and I'm going to do it again probably <laughs> for this episode over. And so, but it is, they are a dynamic team. And for me, right. one of the things I loved about Jarvis is that at no point in time was their friendship ever sexualized. No, I love that too. You're absolutely right. And even more so, like when the show first came out, that was astounding. Like they were literally, we're coworkers and eventually friends that really care about each other. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And so the crime boss is, I, I think, <laughs> uh, exceptional who's sitting there building like this automatic revolver and as the other as the goons sort of coming to tell them what's going on, tweaking it unmoved, unfazed by anything they're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the uh, almost understated performance. And as he kills him, they can't leave the room, but there's amount of terror that they still won't out and outright attack him while he's fixing a gun to kill him. Yeah. Like, and actually, was- you mentioned the, the tech. Um, there's something else that, that I noticed an interesting way. Because if you look at shows like Wild Wild West, um, where a show being shot in a certain time is set in a previous time and in order to show advanced technology of that previous time, they do something that's close to a modern invention, right? So yeah. it's like, you know, you're inventing their automatic revolver and whatnot. Um, I like that this show plays with that expectation because like, oh, Tony Stark's invented, you know, an a, 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 a electronic pulse. And it's like, you know, shut down equipment. We, we know that technology now. So it's like, oh, he was just ahead of his time. But it turns out to be something else. And uh, uh, later episodes shows technology that's genuinely weird science. It's not modern technology, but bigger. It's this is stuff that even today we don't quite make. So it never loses its edge of this is strange and bizarre, which I think is needed because sometimes uh, the Shadow movie does this too. Um, you look at it and say, like, oh, I know what that is. It's it's advanced because they invented a cell phone in 1945 or whatever. Uh, and it's like. It, that could be fun, but if it's overplayed, it just becomes kind of irritating. It's like, so why don't you just make a modern day movie is kind of the undercurrent of that. And this is like, no, it's still superhero weird nonsense. Uh, and I like the fact that for every modern invention invented too early that happens here, there's also stuff. The first Avenger movie does as well, where Tony Stark introduces a levitating car. You know, it's, it's still not a thing we have now. It doesn't work. But it's it's still there. So I like the fact that there's still super tech, quote unquote, in this show. Uh, and and I, I think you meant Howard, but really you're you're right. They're literally the same character. Just I don't even in, care anymore. <laughs> I, mean, I do in I different time do, frames. But, it's... but um, I mean it's it's, it's but I mean that's also watching in the larger MCU. Um, seeing Howard Stark like this and then seeing how firm and cold he is to Tony is an interesting contrast because you can almost mm-hmm. read a sense of Howard didn't want Tony to become like him and Tony did anyway. Uh, so there's an interesting cycle arc that's kind of implied by that. But really, the way this show is written now, we don't have all that context out in the open yet. This is kind of just, Iron Man was popular, so we need someone like Iron Man in this show. So Howard Stark is written very much like Tony Stark. So they are, from an archetype perspective, interchangeable. And the other, to, to your point, though, also it is fun to see, full well, fun and, and interesting to watch the scientists in all the different organizations like the SSR and... Leviathan. Leviathan attempt to figure out Stark technology. Like yeah. in the SSR, you have the shenanigans of them saying, I don't know why it does this thing. I, I touch it here. It sends a shock up my arm, but it melted my glasses. And someone in the background whose arm is on green fire and they're trying to put it out. And then it just yeah. stops. And his arm isn't burned, but like they can't figure out how the technology works. And they're scientists. So it's implied as scientists, they're already smart and they're brighter and they are able to deal with advanced technology. And this technology... Right. Is something they still can't figure out with for the weeks they've had it now still. Mm-hmm. 
right. that is a nice touch that reinforces who Howard is and what he's doing, but also an underlying layer of how scary it is now that all of his technology has been taken by other people. Yep. And it's also a nice touch that Peggy doesn't understand the technology because that's not her character, but instead she has to go and interact with these other people to secretly discover the things that she needs to know, which then reinforces her as a character and her spying abilities. Right. She She's not a technical person. She doesn't need to be, but she can get these technical people to get her to where she needs to go. So like all of that is exceptionally good writing. And I, mm -hmm. I love seeing that. With you on that. Um, other than the fact that when they discover that it's, it's Steve's blood and it is, this goes back to my inherent issue with Tony Stark right. is that they talk about doing things for the greater good. He's like the blood could be used mm -hmm. to cure diseases, the common cold mm -hmm. and all these other things, but he's not thinking about the actual implications of its use by other people as much. He, he offhandedly mentions the government could use it for X and Y, but he still wants to go and make it anyway. And like, he is a person that can do it. He can keep it safe. And Tony's entire thing is like, I can do it. I can like build Iron Man armors all over the world to make sure nothing bad happens. Or if someone steals his armor technology, I can go and police all of them and take mm -hmm. my armor back. Shout out for Armor Wars. <laughs> my, my favorite, uh, uh, subversion of that um is the atomic robo comic which if anyone's not read atomic robo i genuinely recommend it, it is a fun pastiche slash celebration of pulp stories uh but one of the villains is dr dinosaur who is a dinosaur who's also a doctor and uh he has a ray that turns people into dinosaurs and atomic robo brings up the point you're making which is that you can use this to cure cancer you can rewrite people on a genetic level you can solve all sorts of diseases it's like but i don't want to solve diseases i want to turn people into dinosaurs <laughs> and that's tony stark in a nutshell it's like i could do this but i like being the guy who makes these interesting weapons yeah and so it's it's nice that that's, that's there to see and you have to deal with like Peggy understanding all of that things she he wants to do and feeling betrayed by who she considered to be one of her few remaining friends that are alive. Mm -hmm. Like that was a powerful and a very nice touch. And I, I once again mention how awesome it was to see Dottie jump up the wall and kill that guy. Yes. Is there, um, oh, I, I almost forgot to mention the, the obligatory shout out to Stan the Man Lee. Yeah, I was surprised. He, I forgot he had cameos in the TV shows too. Anything else uh, about this episode? No, no. Stan's great. Season one, episode eight. Valediction. The SSR discovers the gas cylinder in the cinema and realizes that uh, Ivankovic... Ah. I think it's Evchenko. Thank you. Uh, Evchenko possibly plans to turn all of New York on itself. Stark returns and explains that he developed a gas named Midnight Oil to give American soldiers extra stamina during the war, but it causes psychosis and leads them to kill each other. During World War II, the American military stole Midnight Oil and used it on the Soviets. Stark believes that... Uh, ah. Evgenko. Evgenko, <laughs> real name Johan Finhoff, Blames Stark for the ensuing massacre and allows the SSR and Stark allows the SSR to use him as bait to draw out Leviathan. The plan goes awry when Underwood distracts the agents and they kidnap Stark. And then they use hypnosis to convince Stark to drop gas on Times Square. At Stark's secret plane hangar, Sousa apprehends Finhoff while Carter 
defeats Underwood, who escapes, and convinces Stark not to drop gas on the city. Carter later discovers discards Rogers' bloods in the East River, finally moving on with her life. While Finhoff is imprisoned with the scheming Zola. Yes, that was an interesting cameo. Uh, um, and for people that don't know, uh, Aaron Zola will soon become, well, in the MCU, a computer. Right. In the comics, he becomes so much more. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, uh, he, yeah. Zola is fascinating. Uh, so this is, to my memory, um, where we get the real strong hints that <clears throat> Dottie is kind of a proto uh, Black Widow. Uh, because uh, Ivchenko, although he, <clears throat> excuse me, is, uh, a Nazi sympathizer uh, does appear to be kind of doing this primarily to get revenge for the Soviets that were massacred at Finnell. Um, and Dottie and him have a, a very clear working relationship that, that parallels um, kind of Stark and Peggy's relationship. So you kind of get the dark mirror thing going, which is pretty common for superhero media. Uh, uh, so, but it, it, it does go into kind of, complicated nuances in terms of who's actually working for what, because that is very much post-World War II political environment. Um, you know, the Project Paperclip was happening where Americans brought a lot of, yeah. uh, of Russian Soviets or Soviet and Nazi scientists into the U.S. to work on things. Um, uh, so the American military stealing to start technology to use it on Soviets is in character with our understanding of the, the mid-40s political environment. Uh, so I don't think it's ever explicitly stated that she is part of the Black Widow program, but you can certainly see how she moves, how she fights, and then her relationship with uh, Ivchenko. There's probably a connection there that that the, the movies don't have to acknowledge, but we can kind of read between the lines. And so you see, start, start to see the kind of those, how far up to the wall can we go as writers to introduce continuity? Uh, because it's done in a way that the movies can completely ignore if they want to, but if they want to acknowledge, they can. And spoiler, they're not going to acknowledge this. But it's it's an interesting attempt to try to imply continuity going back into the movies. That's not going to happen. I, 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 I will respectfully counter that okay. and say that the movies in the end fully acknowledge the Peggy, Car- uh, Peggy Carter show. Oh, they do? Okay. It- because, uh, spoilers if folks haven't seen it, if you go back and watch Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. Edward Jarvis is with Howard Stark. Oh, okay. And I, mi- I missed that. Jarvis, Jarvis's existence in the, in the MCU that solidifies all, all of this as like one of the, the big fan theories. Because otherwise he wouldn't be there. So... Retroactively, that is why Tony called his AI Jarvis in recognition of his father's employee. Yes. And since we're talking about comics, that is what we call a retcon. Right. Boom. Right. Absolutely. Okay. okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, we're going to try to bring in why... retcon once an episode. Oh, easily. Uh, especially with these shows. Um, yeah. But still, uh, uh, that's something that happens 10 years later, right? Yeah. Uh, at this time, the studio has no clue how much they're allowed to get away with. And so it was an interesting moment of how far up the line they're willing to walk. Which goes back to that big feud between those two. And, mm-hmm. oh, what I would not, I would give to be able to read the email exchanges for that. <laughs> Probably a lot of profanity. 
And so it's interesting to see that Stark not only is making weapons, but he's also trying to make like a gas from in the war for the government. And which in of itself then is sort of shows what the government is willing to do during the war as they're making a gas to use on their own troops equivalently to keep them alive. Right. And it is not stated one, one way or the other whether or not they would let their soldiers know or if they would just use it. But it's in a sense imply that if they're willing to use it as a weapon against the enemy to help the Soviets in their fight, that they'd be willing to use it on their own troops if it worked without telling them also. Mm-hmm. Which goes back yeah. to that you can't trust the government, you can't potentially trust the people working for the government to build them technology and weapons. And what does that mean for the soldier on the ground, the person that has to like do the fighting and then come home and live with it? Like those repercussions ripple throughout this entire show and even more so in this episode. And so it's interesting that Sousa is the person who finds the gas and succumbs to it in in the show mm-hmm. uh, because he's in a lot of ways a metaphor for exactly that because um, he is a soldier who went through that exact arc. Uh, in pl- he says at this point that that we, um, that's what he went through. That's how he uh, became sabled. Um, but again, although we don't see his, we want to see part of his fight He's genuinely like swinging for the bleachers and scrapping. And when he comes to, he is in a cell by himself. Uh, so like he was enough of a threat that they locked him away until he recovered, which is the kind of booking you like normally in this kind of, of media, the same person is played for laugh. It's like, Oh look, he tried to fight, you know, he's overcome, but he couldn't really do anything. And then no, he, he, he's portrayed like he is, he's a, a fighter. And he was genuinely dangerous until he was able to recover from the gas. And so I appreciate the fact that they really treated him respectfully in that regard. So he is adequately portrayed as a badass. So one of the episodes that we skipped that I didn't rewatch because I haven't didn't have time this time. So I actually watched the episode once instead of my usual twice is that Thompson is during one of those episodes is is displayed as being uh, it was either a coward who ran away in the middle of a fight or did something. So Thompson's war service, while he got, I think, honorably discharged and everything else, is not true or accurate as Carter's and Seuss's war services. Oh, okay. And so it's interesting to constantly see this person getting all the awards, like all the benefits and everything else, which is reflective of actual history because so mm. many marginalized people's stories are stolen and given to attractive white male presenting people. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that is historically reflective and interesting and painful to watch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. I have more thoughts on that for the next episode. Everybody go to the next episode? Um, since we're short on time, <laughs> yes. But I will end with uh, the last thing. Since we didn't mention her, uh, Peggy's friend who works in the diner is amazed by the apartment they get to live in for free oh, at the end yeah. of the episode is like the reward. And the line that I started the show with comes from the one of Peggy's last sentences in this mm-hmm. is when Thompson gets the credit and the award for capturing the spies and everything else right, right. and gets promoted to chief and Peggy gets nothing and Susan gets nothing. And Susan's mm-hmm. like, what are you going to do? And she tells him basically that I don't do all this for the rewards, and the honors. I do it because I know who I am and it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like that is the most captain America line yep. throughout the entire show. Like yep. that's who Steve Rogers is. That's who Peggy Carter is. They're fighting the good fight because it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. 
anything else for this one? No, that's it. So I chose to do one more episode than we're normally going to do. We're normally going to do three-ish per season, three-ish per show. But as it's the first one and I wanted to figure out the format a little bit better, I wanted to show you how vastly different the second season is compared to the first season. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, Season two, episode one, The Lady in the Lake. In 1947, New York, Chief Thompson and Agent Carter of the SSR apprehend Dottie Underwood. Newly appointed Chief Sousa. Ah, Sousa. Wow, English is hard today. Of the <laughs> Los Angeles SSR branch, meet with Detective Henry, who has discovered a woman's body frozen uh, in a frozen lake during a heat wave. Sousa, doubting his inexperienced agents, asked Thompson for backup. Thompson, knowing the weird rift currently between both Carter and Sousa, sends Carter to help him out. Uh, Carter learns from an Isodyne scientist, Jason Wilkes, Wilkes, <laughs> that the woman, a physicist, Jane Scott, had an affair with Isodyne's owner and prospective senator, Calvin Chadwick. Underwood is taken into FBI custody with Thompson's mentor, Vernon Masters. <laughs> so a, a shout out to that 70s show actor and <laughs> RoboCop actor. Um, yes warning him of the greater forces than the SSR that may affect his future. Henry attempts to kill Wilkes, but is killed himself by a police officer. Henry and the officers were hired to cover up the murder by Chadwick and his actor's wife, Whitney Frost, following the former's affair. So there's so much in this first episode, and there's yeah. so many shout outs to other characters and sort of taking part of them, for instance, Whitney Frost, aka Madam Mask, right? And Jason Wilkes is—I uh, want to say Jason Wilkes, based on the power, would it be equivalent of Graviton. I think so, from the comics. So it is nice to see they're trying to bring in all that comic ness to the show, but at the same time, the stark departure from what we had for first season that was successful is jarring. Um, also, uh, I don't know if you got the reference in the title itself, um, but The Lady in the Lake is actually a Philip Marlowe novel, and Philip Marlowe was a PI in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, so it was another kind of uh, – also touching on, on outside Marvel media a bit what I like. Um, but, uh, but one thing I noticed about this show is a couple – well, actually, a few things I noticed. Um, the, the shift to L.A. I think really helps – cement the tone change uh so on the one hand i like the fact that it's like oh susa is a chief now but it's of a branch that nobody cares about and then later on the show it's like oh by the way we're gonna shut the ssr down anyway so it's everyone involved recognizes this is punishment detail but no one in power will explicitly say that but like <laughs> peggy and susa are immediately done, okay you're being punished by this uh but the other is I probably shouldn't, but I genuinely love the flamingo subplot of, this, <laughs> of Jarvis dealing with this fucking flamingo that Stark wants and watching the logistics of, of dealing with this goddamn flamingo to the point where Jarvis actually, they, 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 Jarvis and Peggy pull up alongside, stare at the flamingo, and Jarvis is like, that's my nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> and like, unlike the actor, Peggy's, the actor Peggy's uh, acting chops, the way she's 
her comedic timing is fantastic, which I hadn't really seen in the first season. But like her her comedic timing is excellent because like the way she like her her face moves, so she doesn't say anything, and she's like trying to articulate what's going on in her head and it's like just enough that you can see that but she's keeping it all down because she's very british and that's very much peggy it's, just, <laughs> oh, it's, it's so genuinely funny and it's so much funnier than the script deserved that to be because <laughs> the actors were just so good with that oh so it is but that but honestly the flamingo subplot sets the tone for the whole season right it's like we're going to do some weird shit this time. <laughs> it it does. And like I said, though, it is so jarring in comparison to everything else that's going on around them. And it is nice to have a black character join the cast. Yes. And it's an episode we're not going to talk about, but in the, I think it's the next episode. There's a moment where they lightly touch racism where Petty, where Peggy and Wilkes are out doing something. They have to encounter the police mm-hmm. and Peggy's, Peggy tries to get defensive and attack, almost going to attack the police. And Wilkes says, that's pointless. What are you going to do? Punch every single cop in the face. Right. And that is a nice touch that I almost chose that episode just for that, but I wanted to introduce this jarringness. But I wanted to mention that because off that episode alone, that inspired me when I used to blog to write a heart to heart S blog about Petty, uh, Peggy and Wilkes together (laughs) cruising around the countryside solving crimes. All right. Shout out for myself that I had to do for that one. Yeah, I know. I I would watch that. It is great to have a black character who's a scientist who mm-hmm. is there to help and is funny and becomes one of a romantic foil. Yep. Like that is a great thing to see. And they even briefly touch on the problematic aspects of that in later episodes before it all goes off, off the rails. Um, but the investigation itself is also nice to get this weird comic X thing going on with the frozen body, then the frozen corner and all of that to see like that's, comics like that is comic comic as comic as you can get mm-hmm. no absolutely and it's um I, I i i almost can't get over the, the the tone shift it's 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 so massive but a they set it in a different coast which i think really helps it's like this is not new york stuff's different here and the marvel universe collectively has decided that the west coast is where strange stuff happens um and again Shout out way back to my Hawkeye run, but Wendy Frost is based in LA. You know, Madame Mask is based in LA. So it's like, you know, there's there's some, it's not coming from nowhere. Uh, Um, Sorry, slight pause for people that don't know who Whitney Frost is and like the 616, who's Whitney Frost, if you don't mind. uh, No, she is is Madame Mask, who is the head of the Magia, which is totally not the Mafia. It's completely different. (laughs) Um, There's two G's in it. Uh, So, um, uh, I, I don't remember if she actually, if that plays out in this season. I actually genuinely have forgotten, but it does. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a neat touch to show that, that, that the city culture impacts the espionage and science cop culture. And to a degree, and like also like, you know, weird freezing powers. Again, we go back to the, this is even pretending to be a modern technology in 1940s dress. It, it's no, this is just straight up superhero weird stuff. Uh, and so, like, it, it's interesting how they escalated the stakes. Um, and I really think stuff like the Flamingo stuff is just they saw those two actors together. It's like we need to give them more stuff to do because Jarvis and Peggy are great together. Um, like the whole subplot of Peggy meeting Jarvis's wife and it being totally oh. not what she expected. 
Brilliant. Um, and she's like, just not, she's like, just not at all jealous of Peggy. And she's like, you know, Jarvis told me you're an amazing person. So I want to help you out. And this is cool. And I'm not threatened by you because I know Jarvis is my husband. And again, it was so refreshing to not have that jealousy plot line there. It's like, no, they're just, they're just friends. Cause you're my, you're my husband's coworker. And I want, I want you to feel like you're part of my, my family. Can we give a shout out to the actress that played Jarvis's wife? Because she was spot on when she did the entire piece too. And yeah. you get the sense that they're going to be friends. And like that is, even from my limited perspective as a male seeing, I don't get to see a lot of female friendships that are like yeah. displayed in television without rivalry or jealousy about like X or Y. And it was nice just to see two people that are going to be friends that want to like engage and have like this bond. Mm-hmm. Yes. And but like when, uh, 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 Jarvis's wife starts making out with him in front of Peggy and Peggy just has that <laughs> super British awkwardness about it. It's like, this is happening and I can't leave. And oh my God, <laughs> it's just, again, it's not played as sexy. It's just played as awkward and it's, it's wonderful. She's like, I, I, I don't want to be part of any of this. <laughs> um, as we're, we're past time for one of our normal episodes, I will, I want to comment that I think that, Haley Atwood's acting is incredible and it is nice to see that reflected from how she does Peggy and how Peggy changes in like different situations to be the character that she's presenting to people to sneak into different places to engage with everyone else and in this episode particularly when she comes in to talk to the potential future senator as this person that's going to be a backer that gets him excited and then when he gives away a secret she flips the switch and becomes back peggy and starts grilling him and you can like see she stands differently her voice is different everything about the character is slightly different and that is a, a very nice touch to see one thing i like about peggy is that um uh the ssr is not quite an espionage organization right it, they're they're more the FBI than the CIA in terms of how they approach problems. Um, and I like that she has that Steve Rogers component of she can lie, but the moment that the lie has fulfilled its purpose, she will be true to herself. Uh, and we saw a little bit in the party of last season. We see it again in this episode of, you know, she can wear a wig. She can put on the American accent. She can get up to her mark. But the moment that she's there, she's Peggy Carter again. Um, and it's it's interesting on the one hand because it shows that she's not a person that likes to lie. Same with Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers can lie, but he prefers not to. He prefers to be straightforward now because he feels like that is the best way to approach things. And so you can mm-hmm. see that Steve Rogers' influence. And secondly, it shows why S.H.I.E.L.D. is such a terrible spy organization if this is where <laughs> the predecessors come from. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to find a reason to debate that, but I can't. Once again, Nick Fury is the worst spy. <laughs> hey, the the '70s uh, Strico run of Nick Fury is awesome. No, I Psychedelic, agree. and you should. I'm not suggesting anyone do anything illegal, but I'm saying. <laughs> Even if you don't, it might be better if you did. All right. Starenko, Starenko is, is fantastic and absolutely read his run of Nick Fury. But in the MCU, Nick Fury is as subtle as a goddamn hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts on Agent Carter? Um, uh, it, I just want to say that like, it seems 
a bit odd to start a run of superheroes with a show that is ostensibly not about superheroes. But I think this was a good decision for a couple of reasons. One is that it is chronologically before a lot of, it's chronologically the earliest of the shows we're probably going to watch. There's a couple of maybe exceptions, but this is a good starting point for when TV definitively started to embrace superheroes as a concept. Mainstream television started really embracing that. Uh, and secondly, it's a good look at how the world of superheroics impact normal people and how they deform the worlds they're a part of. And so going to this early point, looking from the perspective of extraordinary people, but still within human limitations and seeing what a genius like Howard Stark does to that world just by him existing um, is a good way to lean into some of these discussions. So it seems like it's a strange starting point, but actually is a genuinely good one because it will from here, we can then build on other discussions on how these characters impact and change and inspire and uh, deform the, the environments they're a part of. So what Eddie's not telling you is I was really pushing that we start with Incredible Hulk because I wanted to talk about the episode where Lou Ferrigno wrestles a bear. But I want to talk about that show. <laughs> no, I didn't think that was a proper demonstration of the Hulk's superpowers. So we, we agreed to start with Agent Carter. It's not because I'm a huge Captain America fanboy. No. And I think Cap is the best hero and I love no. Peggy. And no. it was the best chronological show to start with for a show that is not part of the MCU at the time. Right. Because this lays the groundwork, as you're saying, for everything else that we really want to discuss. Because most of this first season is focused on the non MCU Marvel. Mm hmm compared to anything that was in DC. So we won't be talking about Smallville this season or the failed Green Arrow pilot from like the 2001, whatever that was. I don't know about that one. They're supposed to, I think, have done a Green Arrow because that's why Green Arrow guest starred originally in Smallville and that oh. didn't go anywhere. Then there was supposed to have a... Backdoor pilot. A Aqu yep. Supposed to have an Aquaman pilot too. And that didn't go anywhere. Oh. So uh, I watched all of Smallville, unfortunately, and I have a lot of Smallville knowledge that I will not get to display this season. Wow. But we're going to do a play-by-play -play episode guide of Smallville right after this. <laughs> all 10 seasons, right up until where he still does not put on the costume because it's computer generated on him. All of that said. Oh, my God. It's Winchester's uh, What What can folks expect us to do next since it won't be Smallville? Uh, so I guess we're not doing Smallville, so I, I'll have to quickly reorganize and decide if we're going to watch Daredevil instead. Uh, so this is the Netflix Daredevil. Uh, we're going to watch uh, all from first season, um, episode one, Into the Ring, episode two, Cut Man, and episode six, Condemned. Uh, Daredevil, unlike Peggy Carter, doesn't really have massive shifts between seasons. So I think season one is, gives you a good glimpse of what the whole show is like. Um, and uh, I'm hope I'm remembering right that these are the shows that have the bits that I want to talk about in them. If not, we'll figure it out. But uh, Daredevil is kind of the pilot for the Netflix integrated mini universe of Marvel stuff. So we'll start there. Okay. If folks are looking for you online, where can they find you? Find me on Twitter at Pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. You can find my website at Pugsteady.com or you can find me in the Darker Hue Discord doing stuff. And if folks are looking for me, you can find me on Twitter at darker underscore Hugh. You can find me in the dark Hugh discord actively asking Eddie if we could do more shows, which I don't have time for as I didn't have, I barely had time this morning <laughs> or you can find me out and about 
virtually not at conventions. So that would be about it. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see you next week with Daredevil. Happy heroing. <laughs>